Welcome to this Q&A, the last of this retreat or time together. So we're picking up on some of the questions that were asked previously that we haven't got to. Hopefully they're helpful for you. Some of them are more about engagement out into the world or you know, engagement with the kind of rough and tumble of our practice. So the first is this question, it's difficult to find a balance between discipline and self-love. If you're waking up early brings about a lot of resistance. What would you suggest? Maybe I don't like to start with that. Yeah, well, quite a few things bring up resistance. Uh, somebody sent me this lovely bag of chocolate-covered coffee beans and uh, you just put one in your mouth and then things start happening and you realise half a bag is gone. <laughs> oh, what happened there? <laughs> it's... <laughs> how did that happen? And then, oh dear. So, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, ongoing need for that awareness and thing do i have to be kind of totally you know rigid stalinist hair blanket kind of hair shirt you know i kind of give myself a break sometime like lie in just once now and then do i have to have this constant nagging get up get on with it thing going and it's you find your way really um, you find your way because you can't do it with the inner tyrant the inner critic can't really find that, that balance you know, the inner critic can't find it. You have to find it, I guess, like all, like all of us, we find it by going in balance one way, in balance another way, in balance. Feel good, feel good. Yeah, so you look at the results of, yeah, he did that, but actually that compulsiveness, that even if it was kind of fairly harmless, you know, lying in bed a bit, you feel the sense of you, you're kind of trapped in it. You know, you've got no, you, you're kind of, it, it's got you. It's got you. You know, whether it's compulsiveness to, you know, sort of lie there or to eat more or to, go to the next thing on the surf, browsing the net, you know, click, 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 had an hour ago, you know, click, 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 you know, I was just enjoying myself, it was kind of nice, you know, um, escape, I was escaping, and uh, how does it feel? It's kind of vacuous, loss of centre, you know, so I, so I think even in, in the waking up bit, in the beginning of the day, like even before you get up, try to find your center. You give yourself, you know, five minutes or so, you're lying there, you know, feeling your body. I'm not saying you've got to get up, just you are awake, or you have woken up. Just how's the body now? Take a few breaths, with your eyes open. Yeah, often you feel fuzzy and groggy. A few more breaths move a little bit and get a sense of I suppose what we're looking at really in some ways is a, a good parent being a good parent to ourselves 
Come on, come on, okay. Let's get up. Come on, we can do such gentle rather than slap, slap, slap. <laughs> and that with a lot of things, you know, the good parent to one's self is, is, a, is a nice image to have in mind. You know, to me, that's, that's when discipline is a kind of love because you know if you don't restrain, you're not going to feel good. If you don't bring effort, you're not going to feel good. So bring forth effort, just a little bit. Restrain, just a little bit. You know, you can do it. That kind of coaching, that's what I would say. Yeah. Yeah, that's, you know, it is a tricky thing, you know, as I was saying the other day, whereas the middle with this place of balance, and I certainly know myself, I'd really love there just be a clear line and I can follow that, but it, actually it's a ongoing reflective process. So one thing I'd say is to trust the resistance you know, and really inquire into it. If waking up brings resistance, you know, what are we waking up into, yeah? So to, to really have a look at that so that it's, you know, the coming into the day feels all right. Because I I just see sometimes this, what seems like lack of discipline is actually something else going, hey, kid, something's not for your well-being. And particularly, you know, in, out in this world, the, the pressure can be enormous, yeah? Most people I know are chronically stressed and chronically tired. And so maybe there's something there that also needs attending to, that the resistance is actually that this being needs better looking after. It doesn't need treating with views about what the practice looks like. To come back to that sense of being willing to attune, find your way, you know, and... It would be so much easier if there was just, you know, if I do this, I'm practicing in the right way. But it doesn't work like that. You know, we're constantly in a reflective process and it has to be guided by love and compassion. And then there's times for making effort, yeah. It's not that we're not all with it, but it's to be making the effort from the right place. You know, that would be my sense for myself. You know, if I'm waking up every morning and there's resistance, I'd be going, hmm, what, what am I not wanting to go out into? You know? Is there something that I need to either pick up differently or have happening differently? And often it's about how we're picking things up, isn't it? That, that we go out into the world and we, we lose our connection with herself and it's so painful so how do I take the whole of me into the next thing so as you're saying Ajahn Sachito really coming into the body is really helpful for that actually you know I have this whole funny thing about bed yoga yeah in a way letting the body wake up in bed rotation ankles stretching the feet you know just that sense of actually really coming into connection. And it feels so beautiful, yeah? 
done my yoga practice, been lying down all the while. Yeah. And the yoga was about actually coming into union, yeah, coming into union with breath and body and awareness, yeah. So just a few thoughts, you know, different, different ways we can work with this um, ongoing inquiry I guess we all have. How to find this middle. You know, there's a, another question that kind of fits into this whole inquiry. Would you please say more about failure as a shadow side of success in our Dhamma practice? I think about my failed attempts at right speech in the midst of a sometimes very frustrating workplace. How do I work with this desire for skillful speech without turning it into a pass-fail endeavour? We're in this territory, aren't we, of the tendency to evaluate. Uh, you know, are we, are we good, are we bad? Is it right or is it wrong? And as soon as we set up this polarity, we're really in trouble, yeah? And what's tricky, you know, we pick up this ethical training, the precepts, and how do you pick them up in the spirit they were intended as a, a reflective training rather than, you know, um, an injunction, you know, like a commandment, yeah? And to really to pick things up and be able to evaluate. And the evaluation always has a sense of, well, what have been the result? I said this, what was the result? What was the result there? What was the result here? Was it in line with my movement to harmlessness? And if not, then there's probably been harm here that needs to be met with compassion. There may be harm there that needs meeting with compassion. Yeah. So, so rather than a kind of external judge, you know, this sense of some external being seeing everything we do and deciding if we're okay, it's to actually come into this aspiration we have to live well, to live skillfully, to live out of compassion and friendliness, and really bring that into our own way of relating to ourselves. There is no failure, yeah. They're just reflective moments where we can reattune to what is most important to us. And as I said, you know, in a Q&A days back, that lovely in, in the training that the Buddha would say, you know, it's growth in the stomach and discipline to recognise when we've gone astray and to acknowledge it so that we just upright the mind again. And, you know, come back into connection with ourselves. We can, you know, it can be so harsh, can't it? Yeah. Right speech, the amount of meditation we think we should do. You know, I know people who go on retreat, First time they've ever been on retreat, at the end of it, they decide they'll be, meditate one hour every morning, one hour every night. And within about a week, if they're lucky, they've failed at the whole practice. Yeah. You know, wow. That was a um, really harsh thing to do to set up 
some unrealistic sense of what is possible. It wasn't in accordance with conditions, yeah? So we can do that with how much meditation we need to do. We can do that with where speech has to be and not really be reflective and, and in tune with what's possible. So sometimes, yeah, you know, we could have said it differently and we wish we had, but we come back to the intention, yeah. There's no intention to hurt, no intention to harm. Next time I know that I'd be more careful with that, yeah. And then we drop it, yeah. Because it can be so painful, can't it? You know, having beautiful aspirations and then in the rough and tumble, other things happen. Yeah, so that's why this practice really, you know, has to be picked up with compassion. Given out of compassion, received with compassion, practice with compassion, yeah? That would be my response. Ajahn, how do you work with this? That sense of, oh, I said the wrong thing, you know? I wish I knew. <laughs> it's, uh, um, well, okay, I'm working with it. Obviously, I agree with what Will is saying. So I'm trying to find another way of putting it. And hmm, my suggestion is if we look at like speech, there's always some kind of in intention, isn't there? There's some sort of, I wish to communicate something, I'm saying something. You know? Now, sometimes that intention is so reactive that we really have no real say over it. It just bump, throws out. We don't have a clear conscious intention. We just have a a jump of reactivity. And unfortunately, quite a bit of speech is conducted in that way. You know, people expect an immediate response. Blah, 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 blah. So it's a very fast tennis match. If you do that, pretty soon somebody's going to throw a wrong ball into the net or into you because if that's what happens. Even if people even joke, suddenly doesn't land in the right place. You think, oh, good thing for me. That was a bit of a goofer. <laughs> you know. So <laughs> what's happening is your, your, your intention is, is kind of fairly, very much on the verbal process and on, you know, it's, it's on the details, especially the topics. I want to communicate this to you. You know, it's on the topic. So it's a tight kind of an intention. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of kind of, and your attention is very much on that. So everything's quite tight. Uh, and we're very much concerned with the topic and getting those words out. Now, if you communicate to somebody else, what's missing? There's the words, there's a topic, there's a wish to communicate it. What's missing? The other person. <laughs> a real awareness of the other person, isn't it? We could, oh, he's sitting there, Carl. Oh, he's the, he's the son, so I'll go and tell it to him, because you are this. Oh, there's the cook, go and tell her that. Oh, there's the engineer, go and tell her that. You know, duh. Number, name say it and quite a lot of time that's what happens you know and so if we just kind of realize that's seeing people as objects is is a source of oh, 
you know, it's uncomfortable or it's really painful. It's the beginning of some kind of abuse, unfortunately, without intention even. So, you know, and also you just, you've, you've really lost touch, one loses touch with the empathy that should be there. If you're going to communicate to somebody, then really you want to get them or something there in, in some kind of focus. What's the, what's the focus for to be with another person? Some kind of agreeable feeling, isn't it? Some kind of empathy. Otherwise, you're not going to talk to a brick wall. You know, you've got some feeling that there's a being there who I could, you know, transmit to. So there's some sort of sympathy. Have you got it? Is it there? And there's an idea, maybe, but as a, as a real experience. Now, if we make our intention to communicate less, just somewhat on the words, obviously, but not 100% on the words, just maybe 70% on the words. You know, I don't know if you can mediate this, but just that light, not having to get every word right. Because if we're in the communication, the other person can say, did you mean this or did you mean that? We can work it out together. You don't have to get it right on the first shot. And you can fumble a bit and they'll say, what, could you say more? And then actually that's good because then you really get you both participate in that communication. Yeah. So a little, little less intensity on that intention to get your words out, even if you mean well with them. And so widen your, your attention a little bit to, am I in my body now? Another person in that, oh. Oh, oh, that reminds me. I want to see. Yeah, let's, let's, let's just stop. <laughs> and, you know, feel what's happened when you see the person you want to say something to. And just, let's just pause. Breathe out. And okay, wind on a bit. Just take it steady. You know, negotiation of contact. Excuse me, is it, can I have a word for you? Is this okay? Is this the right time? Communication. Yeah, sure. Try. You know, so it's a little bit of first knock on the door. Yeah. And, uh, and then maybe start. It seems to me that maybe I think, can you say these few things? You know, a little bit more, less crystalline data. <laughs> you know, a little bit more on the, the way that the data is transferred. And then, so then, then we we to learn it because it is it's indeed uh, a very very sad when one realizes you know one is hurt or confused or interfered or meddled or you know other people you know, and uh, you know you're so ashamed of yourself you don't want to really. We're trying to get it right, but remember, trying to get it right often narrows your attention. So you get very tight around it. I want to make sure I get every word right. You know, no, 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 no. That's not. That's not the summer. Partly the problem is the word summer. We think summer, vajra, right speech. That's not a bad translation, but right summer means more like whole. Speech that is full, that takes in me, 
you and the mode of, of, of how we're talking covers the whole thing. It's holistic speech. It's your holistic. Yeah? Mm. And that's, that's a way of considering all the aspects of the path. I remember Ajahn Sumedho saying he had this problem with walking. He said, I really must be really mindful of my foot because he's got a swollen foot when he's walking barefoot on arms around. Clunk, he hits something. Oh, you idiot, Sumedho. You should be trying to be more mindful. I really got to be more mindful. I must try. And he kicked his something again because he was trying so hard to be mindful. <laughs> this receptivity <coughs> window. He says, you Oh, I've really got to try and be more mindful. I hurt my foot. Bang, he did it again. <laughs> because intention's too tight. And we have a lot of, like, there's almost a loss of confidence that you have to get it right. You know, it's going right. No, look, have confidence that if there is empathy between you, it will find its own way. And you, you won't be too, you won't get this right and wrong feeling. You'll just be, you know, then there's no failure, no success. You just work smoothly. And everybody's, you know, it's, it's finished, it's done. So, yeah. Yeah, it's a, you know, as you're saying, the getting that kind of intention right so critical, isn't it? I know, you know, when I was working in Melbourne and having to go into a really complex workplace with lots of people and all this urgencies, what I found really helpful was to, as I was driving in, yeah, to be running all the team, we had this big dynamic team, through my consciousness, through my heart, with a sense of just may they be well and just attuning a little to the, in a way, the pressures they were under in their lives and work, yeah? You know, so it really helped then if someone came in and they were snappy, not to be snappy back. You know, oh, okay. Yeah. It seemed to help me stay a bit more cool. And then there are times when you don't and you have to go, well, yeah, what's, what's it like here too? But to really have our attention, intention really massaged. What you're saying is helpful. But having ways of doing that for yourself. The next question is about, maybe I read it, in the present day state of affairs and the easy sharing of information, I've developed an addiction to Dhamma talks, videos, books, articles from many teachers, but it was only mainly in the Theravada tradition. Nevertheless, I noticed it takes away from the practice in the moment to notice the mind's whereabouts and also to meditate. It seems like a noble addiction, but I'm thinking that it's linked to a lack of desire for practice, either for meditating or in the moment, since the mind is again looking for fulfillment outside itself. How to deal with that addiction and all the fueling of desire for practice. So, maybe I'll say a few things and pass over to you, Bhante. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount out there, yeah? And particularly at this time where we're 
you know, so many people haven't been able to come into groups together, into contact, into you know, retreat centres, being able just to come into a more embodied relationship with the practice. There's been stuff pouring out from everywhere, yeah. And how do you meet that? And, and what do you, how do you navigate that? You know, and it seems that, you know, I hear in that a lot of um, reflection and awareness, yeah, that sense that actually it is about being here. Yeah. It is about taking what's taught, what's pointed to, and actually bringing it into our own chitta. And it's another of these kind of middle things. It's a reflective process. Hearing teachings, engaging, reading can really feed and fuel and support our willingness and our capacity to be here. And then when you notice they're taking us away, you go, whoa, maybe that needs to be slowed down to, to be more discerning. And there's so much anxiety and agitation out there that there is something skillful about keeping the mind in contact with what is beautiful and good, which you can we can do through listening to teaching. Yeah. yeah. So it's better than doing other kind of things to get away from the agitation of the mind. I would say it's a skillful it's a skillful place to place the mind have the heart of tuning. And then, you know, but in the end, the work is about being here, understanding this chitta and the ways, you know, what ways we do dukkha. Yeah. So to be aware of that and to start in, in, inquiry, you know, why, why am I giving my power away? My, my waking up power, my power to, to know for myself. Why am I thinking it belongs somewhere else? And there are a lot of the structures can make it seem like it's somewhere else. So to me, our part of our work is to take back our understanding that there is only one place and only one time to wake up, and it's here and now, you know, and even in the time of the Buddha, people would want to be knocked on the head with a stick by him and woken up. But even a Buddha couldn't do that. A person had to do the work for themselves. So really, I would say we've all heard enough on some level. Yeah. Yeah, we've heard the full noble truth. We've heard about the path of practice. We understand Sila Samadhi Panya. So anything else we hear is really just about having something that resonates with our love of practice, our love of the Dhamma, our desire to wake up. It's not like you have to get anything else, hear anything else. In my experience, the, the teaching, you know, the teaching's been given, yeah, but it's it's to be embodied. We just some thoughts on that. I don't um, you know. Probably we haven't got these all the stuff flooding in in the same way. <laughs> well, yeah, 
I think it's said uh, that in listening to a Dhamma talk with all the seven factors of enlightenment may appear, should appear if you really listen to it. Um, so it's listening and gobbling. You know, it's like one can just gobble things for a certain stimulation effect or just to get more information. Or you can take a bit and take it in deeply. And that's probably a slower process. You know, so if you find yourself stuffing, then, you know, okay, maybe that's a, a good a good direction to go in, you know, better than stuffing yourself with other things. Um, perhaps just take it more slowly and, and reflect upon um, how it's affecting you, you know, the teachings, how it's affecting you. So, I mean, I, I, I think I'll just qualify. I, I think that sometimes there are particular little skillful means that can be communicated after one's got the basic theme you know some little tips uh, coaching um, from people who have more experience or you know somewhere or another so you can, you can pick up bits and you can also pick up inspiration that is oh yeah i'm hearing as you were saying you're hearing the same thing again oh yeah remember resonate oh he gets that too all oh, right you know i get that so there's that sense of another level of, of Dhamma uh, transmission is just the, the empathy, the, empathy, the sense of, oh yes, that, that gets me. You know? Not really the information, it's the sense of hearing that, that tune, if you like, and finding that that pattern fits your pattern. So that's precious. It's not information so much as just finding a place where your chitta is kind of fitted, You've you've been you've, it's been given back to you because it's often thrown out. So careful transmission can help that place. But all the time in 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 listening and in after talk is finished, just to take some time to where did that land? And as I've suggested, often you listen to a talk for forty five minutes or an hour. There might be three points in that that were for you. Um, the whole thing just felt nice, good, but there were maybe three points of information that you want to remember. And sometimes it's just flashes over, you know. Uh, so you listen from your upright axis and open. Uh, and then, then what does come in is exactly the little bits of food that just help to fill that piece or just open that bit up, you know. I think there's a skill in listening to talks and it's true there's a lot out there one can get kind of you know gobbling yeah when having to live within a society that seems to worship ownership and personal gain how can one protect oneself without becoming distrustful stingy and closed off to people well, one must be owner of one's own intentions. Chitta, there's nothing else to own, really. <laughs> there isn't any ownership. The emphasis on ownership already throws things off balance. But of course, if people are making a big deal out, they got this and they got that, and this is fantastic, that's fantastic, and you know, all that kind of thing. You know, what they got? They got just they got a lot of they got a lot of glitter, a lot of bling. You know, what they call it bling. You know, glitter, 
and, and shimmy and, and sheen. There's no, no flavour in it. The only thing you can get, if that's the right word, is your own heart. Mm. Or to re retrieve it, you know, you want to take it out of that grabbing world ownership. And if somebody wants to own you, you know, like your boss wants to own you, and you, say, you know, you want to be careful of those contracts that you see. So you don't, you know, you, you're not ownable by anything or anyone. It's impossible. It's not just being hard, it's just it is impossible. <laughs> you know, it can't be done. So you need to make it clear to yourself and what is it, you know, in a way that it really cannot be owned. Uh, and that's the most precious thing. That's the most precious thing. It's your own freedom. Mm. And I mean, many, many of the um, the languages and the, and the psychologies of, of the world. That's what worldly means. It's it's going in the wrong direction. I don't mean everybody on the planet Earth's in the wrong direction, but these worldly currents—they're all about sweeping one out into realms that actually that take you out of your own home territory, your own chitta. And that's that's dangerous. You know, you know we draw from that. They've simply if simply, unless you have, unless you have to lose on that level. Modest. Uh, so you can not get too concerned about that stuff, so you can focus on what really never leaves you, everything else leaves you. There's something you don't own that you also, that you never lose either. It's your own chitta. Thank you. Yeah. It's hard, yeah. It's hard, isn't it? When we're meeting a world that has different currents, you know, than, than the currents of the Dhamma. And you know, I often just come back to that sense of, of the Buddha talked about practice being against the stream. Yeah, and it's hard when the river is rushing that way to be swimming this way, yeah? But I find it helps, helpful just to be really clear about that, yeah? Practice is against the stream. So there is, yeah, means, means there's a, that the values that the world is trumpeting are, are bound to be different from the values of the titter, the value of the heart cultivation, yeah. Sometimes they line up, you know. I'm fortunate I live in a place where the values around me, lots of the values around me line up, yeah. So that can bring some relaxation, yeah. And so we, we try and live in spheres, and the world has so many spheres where there's not too much disjunction between our own chitta, our own values, our own understanding of what's important in the world around us. But that can be hard, can't it? Yeah. To, to, to know and trust what we think is important. And I, I have this, you know, lots of people talk to me about this in a way because they come from families that they're expected to be successful 
and have the signs of success. And they've chosen um, to put practice, dhamma, service of the community, things related to the Brahma Bihar, love, compassion, at the centre of their life, and that doesn't usually result in great material success. And there can be a lot of judgment and criticism that comes if you're not meeting the values that your family hold or the people around you hold. So what I think is really protective is to have friends in the Dhamma so it's not so lonely. You have other people who value the cultivation of the citta, whose values are aligned with the spirit, not with the material. Just even one other person can make a huge difference. Someone you ring up on the telephone and just stay in connection with because it is really can be really lonely and then the heart starts closing. So to feel yourself in connection, connection with us, with the stream of waking up. And and it's hard because we have to work, we have to engage in the world, you know, so we have the requisites. We have housing, food, medicine, the things that keep the body alive and well. We have duties to our families. Yeah. So it's not like you can't engage, yeah. but to engage from what matters to you yeah. and to be clear that that may not look like other people think it should. So we have friends. Yeah. Friends become vital. That's, that's to me how we... You know, protect ourselves becoming from distrustful, closed down, stingy. We can resonate here, we can resonate with them. We keep heart with the whole thing. We keep moving. Question here. Is can you discuss skillful ways to relate to anger? My therapist has suggested that it's difficult for me to express anger, but my practice teaches me to let go, not take things personally. I can discern skillfully, I believe, with clarity of sense of what is right and wrong, but I don't necessarily get worked up by it. What is a skillful way to deal with anger? You know, John? Well, yeah, okay, anger is a pretty natural energy all creatures have to defend themselves. So sometimes anger is caused by the appearance, the manifestation of the sign of threat. One feels threatened, Uh, one's body feels threatened, one's life feels threatened, one's that which one holds dear feels threatened, one's project feels threatened, one's family feels threatened, one's emotional security feels threatened, so one gets angry, or this energy rises up, which is essentially a, a, kind of like a defender, you know, a defender. 
So the body powers up. When it powers up, it kind of it loses empathy. That's that's the problem of it. You know, because in that mode, we're just all, we're a hundred percent in this, rather than you know mostly in here, but also some out there to pick up where you're at. I, I lose that. It's come completely into this. All the energy is withdrawn into this, and then you know, to power up. Dangerous, dangerous stuff. It's, it's all creatures do it for survival, but it's dangerous stuff. So we were you know, saying we what we're saying is well, you know, once it's there, then you've got the, the issue of well, you've got to sort of hold it carefully. You can't just can it. You've got to feel it in your body and sort of check: is anything really threatening? You know, can I almost? come back to the center and feel my feel the ground so I'm strong so this you transmute your anger into just core strength which means I take a stand on this I'm not accepting that I take a stand on this I'm not accepting that that's enough of this yeah. so that's strong or words that effect but it's not that Running out. So then we actually transmute our anger into strength. And sometimes that's, you know, if you speak the truth, and the truth is, that's not acceptable to me now. I'm not going to say anything about you, what you are, what you should be. I'm just saying, this is not acceptable to me now. There's something about the clear, direct quality of truth that's got a power to it. It trans, you, you transmute the energy of anger into that clear determination of what's true for you now. And just how it is now. Now that may change in three minutes. Okay. Ah, okay, I see what you really mean. Yeah, we can look at that again. Yeah. You know, all right, okay. You know, the threat signal is gone. And it's good to maybe be able to to do that in a non-aggressive way, just sorry, that's enough for now. You know, say it again without getting the get the heat flush. We also get something called righteous indignation, which is kind of similar. You know, look, I've, you know, this is really this is improper behaviour. I've told people fifty times. Can't you see what you're doing? Look, I mean, you're you're supposed to be a sensible adult, and you're behaving like. I mean, this is. Can't you see what you're doing? This kind of righteous indignation, which isn't it? Somehow the idea is that you've got to shake people into 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 clarity. And I I done I've done some of that. <laughs> a few dumber teachers have done that, all right. <laughs> Ajahn Chah said a lot of anger, but he transmuted it. But it was potent anger. I've seen Ajahn Sumedho, bless him. You can certainly turn on the heat. Uh, you know, this is not acceptable behaviour of righteous indignation. He just back off. Um, yeah, but you know, maybe, maybe just uh, let's hear that again. Can we be a little more patient? A little more patient. Beings are confused. Beings do forget. Yeah. And so that sense of clarity. Listen, 
Have you heard me talk about this before? Now you notice the way the Buddha would admonish people. And I imagine being admonished by a Buddha was a pretty hair-raising experience, you know, when all that power came down the line at you. And say, misguided man, have I not told you? <laughs> you think, uh oh. <laughs> this Dharma is not for the purpose of gain, not for sensuality. Misguided man, this will be for your harm and suffering in the future and for the harm and suffering of others. Misguided man, you know. And then generally people hit the floor and, okay, saw you, Lord. You know, but <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that energy. But the Buddha is kind of like laying on the line. This is improper behavior, and why? Because it will lead to your harm, lead to your your defilement. You know, it will lead you to a bad place. It's the ang it's the righteous anger of a careful parent. You know, and that's it's not just you know feeling frustrated with everybody because you didn't get it. You know, feeling frustrated and that kind. Of, it's just that. Beings are confused. Lay it down, tell them why, and show you care. That's why you're saying it. So there's different ways in which we try to tra transmute this energy. You ever get angry, Willa? I've been practicing getting angry, yeah? Um, because it is an energy, yeah? And it's an energy that has a boundary to it, and it's very protective. And... You know, in this question, the person's therapist is saying, well, you have, you know, their view is some, this person has difficulty with it. And, yeah, many of us were brought up where it was not okay to be angry, mm -hmm. you know, particularly if you're in a female form, yeah? It's an energy we have to learn about. And in the monastery, the nuns had this whole, I don't know, seven, eight more years while working therapeutically with this really wonderful woman. And I remember one time she had us up going, no, no, and shake, stamping our foot and putting up our hand and really feeling that energy. Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. what it feels like if you actually come and embody that sense of no, this is not okay. Yeah. And so it's a really important energy of, of keeping the boundary, keeping things so that they're suitable. So it needs to be understood. So what what is that energy that does, if it doesn't have hostility in it? You know, then it is protective. It keeps things safe. Yeah. But it it's something many of us have to learn about. Mm. No, and she she said to me, "You need to feel your no, so you can feel your yes." Okay, so really exploring that energy rather than having a fear of it, and and um, thinking, "Oh, this is a is I John saying kind of natural energy." I see the cat has it. There are all these cats here. Yeah, now little cat. One or another will come together and they'll go like this, yeah? And then they'll settle down again. You think, yeah, they're saying, hey, you take care. Yeah? So to, to understand it for what it offers and then to be able to 
get it so it isn't coming out of hostility. So that, and this is where, in you know, my practice, really getting so the mind has cultivated, you know, the Brahma become metta, so that in when something unpleasant happens, yeah, that the mind just doesn't fire into negativity, that channels, what they'd now say the neural channels, are actually to love, to opening, to trying to come into empathy with whatever is going on here and there, yeah? And we can do that through cultivation of, of these heart qualities, and we can do it by getting our mindfulness strong enough that when that energy starts rising, we understand it and we understand what it's telling us, yeah? That's something I've had to learn about. I remember one time when you know, I was a, I don't know, kind of middling nun in the monastery, kind of senior nun at Chateurs, and I had a week's retreat and I realised, oh, I, I have a new feeling going on and here it's kind of resentment. And it was, well, this is really unpleasant. Yeah? And to really come in and feel it, and the more I felt it, the more I understood. It was telling me I, something I needed to know, yeah? that I hadn't been taking proper care of myself, that I'd been, in a way, focused out there but not paying proper attention to what was needed here. So I've got so more and more trust these energies. They, everything is waking up, yeah, and so these energies are part of things we need to know. So to come out of fear around them and and be able to hear what is said, but hear it by being able to hold it so it's not just, um, what to call it, just cascading out everywhere and bringing harm. To know it, understand it, hear the gifts it brings in terms of understanding where the boundaries need to be. That's what I would offer. Because we, if you've been brought up to talk and told all the time not to be angry, yeah, you can get so you don't trust that energy. And we don't want to anger that goes from skillfulness is no good, yeah. But to be able to start to feel it in the body, know where it is, know when it starts to rise, because then you can be more attentive and mindful and go, okay, I need to slow down here. So things don't start spilling out. But to have that capacity to be able to say, no, this is not all right, is really important. This is not for the well-being of this being. It's not for the well-being of other beings. It's not for the well-being of both. So that's the energy if we just suppress anger we don't have access to. So it's something to be understood and transmuted, as you'll say, my child. Yeah. Shall we keep with the flow? Next question. In becoming aware of the breath, is there a benefit to regulating it anyway? I practice yoga. I was wondering if you could expound upon the relationship between Buddhism and yoga philosophy. 
Is there a value in regulating the breath or should we just stay with the natural flow? This depends what natural flow is really because sometimes it's the fact that people don't have a natural flow where the breath is extremely constricted. But then I, my suggestion is you don't really do the breathing you work on, if you're going to work on anything, you work on the, the physicality of the body. Don't, don't mess with the breathing itself, just work on the, the physicality of it, the body, and not too hard. You know, but subtly you can get, because if you try too hard, that tenses everything up, it's going to be a softening of the musculature and the belly and so forth. And then you find particular postures might be easier. Reclining, generally people find it breathing relatively easy. Um, standing and so be aware of the the, the problem of, of witnessing the breath strange how that action because the action again can be done by this this particular kind of intention our attention that i've talked about which is restrictive as soon as we really got to get it then ooh, it tightens up there's something exquisitely sensitive just about having a that like 75 percent attention you know so it's quite wide and softer and just putting that over the whole body and wait until the breath comes to you don't hunt it and then see where it feels most complete may not be complete but see where it feels most complete and bring that quality of soft warm appreciative attention to that place where it does feel okay and then maybe it will start to trickle open a little bit more as you in, in, over time, I think that's definitely more than a minute. Yes, just briefly, it's a valuable consideration, yeah. And as you're saying, Ajahn, in in our practice, they're actually trying to come out of doing the breath, interfering with the breath, into this deep receptivity. Yeah? So, if you know, there are other systems of. of you know, deliberate different kind of patterns of breath. And to really know the difference between those two is really important. For my part, I, you know, we had boutique, all kinds of stuff flow through as ways of being with the breath. And I found that if I do too much of that kind of doing exercises of the breath, it starts to interfere with my capacity for receptivity. So it's something I just check out. You know, I, there gets to be a habit of interfering. So, you know, and some of you may be more skilled in keeping those two things as one's a kind of exercises, one's a kind of presence, yeah? So that would be my, just my little comment, just to make sure one wasn't leaking into the other and really impacting your capacity to let the breath be the breath, yeah. loving, attuned. Yeah. So time is up. We should let you go to the next thing, everybody.